After hours of interviews and soul-searching questions, over a dozen courageous people were able to share their stories of overcoming homelessness and other forms of trauma for the book Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me on today's Fordham Conversations are three women who helped make this book happen. Deborah Canty and Sophia Worrell were homeless in New York, survived sexual abuse and domestic violence, graduated from a life skills program, and now use their stories to inspire others. And Fordham professor Susan Greenfield served as the book's editor. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Robin. Hi. Sophia, can you tell me what life was like in Barbados when you were young? Oh, when I was growing up, um, I lived with my mom and my dad, and I didn't think about it at the time, but I lived with older siblings. My older siblings, they had different fathers, so I had two older brothers, an older sister, and they all had different fathers. My mom and my dad, they shared two kids. I was the older one and then my younger brother, and and um, so we lived together, and that's really my first memories of, of families. And um, and you were close-knit. We were close-knit. And the beautiful thing about my family is that they embraced my dad as their dad. And he was wonderful. He treated all of us equally. So, you know, no one thought about half-brother, half-sister, half-anything. We were just brothers and sisters. And we live in a... My mom was a maid. My dad was a carpenter. They provided. And... Um, we had good memories. I had great memories. I had one of my best memories was on Sundays after my mom would finish cooking and we would have um, Sunday lunch. My dad, he loved oldies and he would always go and start to play his records and his oldies. And the two of them, they loved dancing. And some juncture, my mom and my dad would start to dance. And that was a ritual every Sunday. And the two of them, they loved clubbing. Um, it was called something different at that time. <laughs> we were back in the days. So they were always out. Every Saturday they were out. Every Friday they were out. And we were left alone, but we didn't mind because my mom, she enjoyed going out and dancing, and he did. And we just accepted that. We were really, really, um, it was a wonderful time until the age of nine. And what happened at nine? So this was back 71, 72. Um, like all Caribbean families, you know, someone decides to leave to come to America to get, uh, for us to have a better life. So my, my mom, she left and she came to America. I guess it was New York City. And um, it was a really hard time for her to leave because up to that time, all we knew was mom and dad and for them to be together and providing. So she came here and left my dad to take care of all of us. And at one point, uh, my dad started to complain that it was too rough to come home from work, to take care of us and to cook and to do everything. And although we were girls and, you know, we had all different chores, he thought it was just too tough. And uh, he ended up deciding, well, his way of spinning it was he was going to have someone to come in to do the help with the cooking and cleaning. Another female. Another female from the neighborhood. But eventually um, it started to get awkward. Um, long short of it, he got involved with her. 
and then he would lock us in the room. We couldn't watch television and everything, was, you know, and um, she got pregnant. By your dad? By my dad. Um, he denied it to the end, to his death. He said the, the boy was not his. At that time, the lady, she was also in a, involved with someone else in the neighborhood. So it was, you know, up in the air. Messy. Yeah. But the point is, he had her, she got pregnant, and... Um, of course, my mom found out and... Because they're still to... married. Huh? They were still married. No, well, my mom and dad weren't married. Oh, they were they're still together. In the though. Caribbean, you just lived okay. with your partner. And um, so she made the decision to come back. And everything went downhill from there. There are things that, you know, you would see as a child and I never really take notice of because there was some abuse in, in my family. and um, But... This one, we noticed. We the, the, we had a chatter house. It was three bedrooms. You could hear the migraine. And it was every night. It was every single night. There was fighting. There was arguing. It was, it was just ridiculous. If you could look back, what do you think changed? Well, of course, my mom felt angry. Who, who wouldn't, you know, for him to have an affair and then for the lady to be pregnant, the woman to be pregnant. I mean, who, who wants that? So she was she was in her right to be to be angry, and she put him out, or, or he left. One, maybe a combination of both. But and either was, way, you lost your dad. It was the hardest thing, the hardest thing. So there's two things I want to just pick it back on something with um, that Deborah said earlier. Like you know, it it's just amazing how your lives um, correlate. So when he packed up, I still have the image in my mind. He had what we call a little valise. Mm. We don't. We, we call it valise, not a suitcase. And he literally just packed a little valise, and he's walking away. And I'm, and I ran after him, and I'm asking him why he's leaving. And you know, he he said, you know, that's what he has to do. And and it it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, I mean, it made sense, but daddies don't leave their kids. Daddies don't leave. They don't leave. And half of me, I, if you could, if you could have like a, a paper doll and put me in a cartoon, you would see one frame that would have me as a whole, and then the second frame would would, would show me just ripped in half. Mm -hmm. And I never mended after that. It, it My life just literally ripped apart, and there was nothing to put it to, together again. So I, I just want to back up a little bit, because when, when Deborah was talking, it was amazing. She says something that I experienced. And it only, I think, really came to mind after my dad left. Maybe I never thought about it then, but I had this, I don't know if it was a dream or if it was just a recurring image or a thought or what it was, but I had this recurring idea that someone did something to me. I don't know who it was. I have no clue. But my mom, she had, my mom and dad, they had a, a, a friend. He was like, oh, he was, I don't know. He was like w one of the family. And every single time he came to the house, I just hated him. I just didn't want to be around him. And I, and, and I couldn't figure out why. They were, you know, it's my mom's best friend, my dad's best friend. And I just couldn't stomach this guy. And... um for years, I never knew why. And 
Uh, I never shared it with anyone, but I have this image and I said, is it a dream? Is it real? So I'm on the kitchen table, the kitchen counter. And this person is there. I can see their back, not their face. And they're doing something. I don't know what they're doing. And then they ejaculate and I see it all of the time. And I don't know who it was, but the day he died was when I felt like, yeah, something just felt right after that. But I, I read that often sexual abuse survivors, when it happens at a very, very young age, you almost block it out so that you're able to function to a certain extent. Do you mm -hmm. think that might have been what happened? I'm thinking too, and I don't know if I don't know if it was block. I don't know if it was too young. I don't know why the age two comes to mind because I I'm just a tiny little thing, and I don't know why something like that would happen to a tiny little thing. So I I guess I blocked it out. And after that, Sophia, you were attacked multiple times by multiple men in different situations. Can you share a few of the incidents that happened? My dad leaving was the worst thing that could happen to me because my mom, uh, she just had so many different meals. And um, it's not a situation that I would ever repeat, not even for my son. It was just, just, just this array of men who would be coming to the house and being involved with her. And one of the annoying, sickening things was at that time I was young and, and beautiful and good looking or whatever it is. And maybe it was that, maybe it had nothing to do with that. And these guys always felt, you know, they would say that, you know, you're so beautiful. So maybe that's why I'm repeating it. You're so beautiful. And um, so I had a number of stepfathers who tried to, to molest me. And, you know, I'm thankful that at that point, point there was there was no penetration but just the thought of these men on different occasions um one of the first ones was was uh my mom she was dating this guy he had a shop and I always loved being around my mom I always loved being around my dad and so he had a shop in another um parish and I was lying on the bed and I'm reading Agatha Christie and and I don't know. Because in the shop in the back, there was a, a bed. There was right? a bed, yeah. yeah. And so I'm, a store in the front and a little and it's the store resting in the front. room in the back. So why am I there alone? I don't remember. Um, I'm young and naive. This is one of the first guys that she was dating. And he was, you know, he, he seemed to be okay. And I'm lying on the bed. And I don't know where my mom was. But I'm reading Agatha Christie. And he comes in the room. And he's asking me about it. And. I'm not thinking anything. So I'm telling him about the book and I'm just lying there and talking to him and out of the blue, he just rolls on me and I'm taken completely off car. Like, and, and I'm thinking this, this, I'm thinking all kinds of thoughts. This can't be happening. And how, how do a skinny little frail little thing get this guy off? And I just remember just praying, you know, not to let him put, what he puts in my mom and me, that would be, I don't know. I'd, just that thought, maybe just give me the energy and, and I just prayed, God, just give me the strength just to get him off. And um, just with one heave, I don't know how I, how, how, I got, how I got from under him because he was a big guy. 
and I just ran. He there was a shed to the back of the store. I ran, and there were all these old things. I ran behind it, and I just hid. And I'm thinking, where the heck is my mother? And I stayed there, and I said, I'm, and he came trying to get me, and, and I wouldn't even respond to him because all I was thinking is if I if I ever come out, you know, I'll just be I'll kill you or whatever. So I was just so mad. And I stayed there, and then I heard my mom. Uh, she would always come with some little, you know, morning or whatever it is. And I heard her, and then she asked where it was and came on, and, you know, why are you here? And I made up some excuse, but I didn't tell her what had happened. I, I just kept it to myself. WFUV members help create great radio with their financial support, contributing most of WFUV's funding. Your tax-deductible contribution will help pay for the music, news, information, and public affairs shows you rely on from WFUV. Be part of the community of listeners who support this non-commercial public radio station. Join or renew your WFUV contribution form or call 877-WFUV-907. That's 877-938-8907. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing is out now by Fordham Press. I'm joined by three women who helped create that book. Fordham professor Susan Greenfield edited the book. And Deborah Canty and Sophia Rural were homeless in New York, survived sexual abuse and domestic violence, graduated from a life skills program, and now use their stories to inspire others. Susan, tell me what made you want to edit this book? What inspired you about this book? Well, I had started to volunteer for the Life Skills Empowerment Program in 2009 as a mentor. And as part of that program, everyone who participates, people who are experiencing homelessness or, or have experienced homelessness, as part of that program, everyone is asked to write a version of their life stories, a short version of their life stories. And so when I was working with my mentee, Rodney Allen, who's also in the book, he wanted help crafting a story, and that process really riveted me. His story was amazing. He was amazing. And I'm an English professor, so I love great stories, and also I was very moved by his stories. And how did you end up gathering the people and choosing the people to interview? So what I would just first say is then I started to hear a lot of stories because I stayed involved in the program. And over the years, as I participated in the Life Skills Empowerment Program, I got to hear a huge number of amazing stories. And yet I knew that these stories weren't being archived, that some people were writing them down, but only people involved in the program were really getting to hear them. Some people went out and told their stories in large public forum, but for the most part, they weren't being preserved in print. And that was something that I really cared about, given my profession. And then around 2013, George Horton, one of the co-founders of the Life Skills Empowerment Program, just said offhandedly, you know, I've always wished that there was a book uh, that collected these stories. And I was at a point in my life where I didn't really know what to do next. That's itself a long story. <laughs> and I said, I'll do it. And George said, oh, well, you're not doing it alone. <laughs> and he thought we should have an advisory board. And so he convened an advisory board that included George Horton, Mark Greenberg from the Interfaith Assembly on Homelessness and Housing, and he also was a co-founder of the Life Skills Program. 
and Dennis Barton, a participant in the Life Skills Program who himself had been homeless, James Addison, who also had participated in the program and been homeless, and Michelle Riddle, who was in the same situation. They were really the experts, and together we chose graduates from the Life Skills Empowerment Program whose own life histories had led them to be of service to other people. And ultimately, this book is to help others tell their story and help others connect with the participant's story. Is that correct? You know, there are a lot of goals for the book. One is to help people who themselves are struggling with homelessness and trauma because these are very inspiring stories. They're stories of resilience. Everyone who shared a story really had a terrible trauma and had very low moments in their lives. And so it's meant to inspire people who are in those positions and who need help. And it's also meant to educate people who are blessed with not having been in that position or being in that position. It's meant to educate people about homelessness. It's meant to educate people about the kind of people too many of us tend to walk past on the street or say, you know, why don't they get a job or, you know, whatever things people say about people who are homeless. But as I worked on the book and listened to people like Sophia and Deborah, I realized that, you know, people who become homeless have also experienced all kinds of other things. And it's meant to educate people about that. And Deborah and Sophia especially are very vocal and powerful in talking openly about their experience of domestic violence and sexual abuse and believers and how important this is for other people to hear it. And I, I'd like to turn my questions over to Deborah now. So you moved to New York City after living in North Carolina. What was your life like down south? It was all I knew. It was life. I had both sets of grandparents. I've had thousands of cousins and family members, and church was a second home. And um, I remember, you know, just a place of get. I knew everybody in my, in, in our little village. You know, they were family. But um, if I could talk about when I came to New York at age seven, I remember the day as well. My mother, she had been gone for like a year. She came to New York to uh, get us kids and bring us up here. So she was up here making money. She came back and got us, I think it was like in June. And you were living with your aunt at this time? My aunt and my grandmother in between, mm -hmm. my mother's mother. And I remember I was laying in the bed and I had gotten a baby doll. And they said, your mother's here. She, like, she just came and, and swept us up and put us in a car and we left. But now today I understand why. At the time, seven years old, I had no clue church was a second home. In the book, you talk about how, you know, people ate there, there were parties it, there. It was, it, was second, it was second home. We had parties there. We, we went there. We, well, we went to Sunday school in the morning. We got a nickel. <laughs> and, of course, we bought candy before we went in there and put a penny. <laughs> and we came home, and then the adults came back with us to church. It, it was, you know, if you didn't, you didn't go to school, you know, if you didn't go to church, you, you know, you wasn't allowed to go out and play. That was, it was mandatory that you did the church thing. And, and and the other thing I remember about your story, didn't you spend a couple of days picking cotton? Yes, I did. First grade, we was late. My aunt and uncle just got married and my mother left and my grandparents, they had one of my brothers, so they couldn't, 
take care of two of them. So my aunt and uncle took me and my brother, Kenny, in. And uh, if we was late for school, they would take us out to pick cotton. Well, we played. We didn't really pick no cotton. <laughs> but she had to go and pick cotton to put meal on the table. And, and at the time, you didn't know why your mother had left. No, What I didn't. did you th- think at the time when you were seven and you had your little baby doll that you ended up leaving behind yes, and your mom I came did. to get you? Yes, I did. <laughs> I, I missed that doll to this day. <laughs> I really didn't know what happened to my mother, but, you know, I'd seen some violence with her and my father. So I'm thinking that, you know, it had something to do with him. Mm-hmm. And but, how old were you when you moved to Brooklyn? Seven. You were seven. So can you share with me, um, that's about the time when you became sort of introverted when you moved to the city. Yes. So what was going on, what was life like when you first moved to Brooklyn? My mother moved on Atlantic Avenue. It's an eight-lane street in Brooklyn. I've never seen that many cars in my life. And George Horton helped me realize this. This is when fear set in. I was scared of everything, of everybody, couldn't cross the street, even holding my mother's hand. And uh, I heard different languages, you know. I always heard people I can understand, but we lived next door to a Spanish family, and that was odd, and everything changed. And they used to pick on you and your brothers. Oh, yes. Well, it was country. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you weren't used to. You know, no, you're going yeah. from these big fields and right. being out and running around to like these highways with streets that are zooming all over the place. And well, kind of describe to me what what it was like. You had these big lanes. What kind of apartment were you guys living in? You know, you were there with your mom and your brothers. Yeah, it was uh, the bottom floor was empty. We was on the top floor. It was like one bedroom one big room, and then it was like a little dining room and kitchen in the front and a flight of steps. I remember my mother killed a rat with a, a hammer one day, and it, and she was scared to move, and we were scared to move, so it sat, she just threw a cover over it till somebody came and moved it. My first dog in New York, well, we always had a puppy or a dog when we was in the South, but she let us have our first dog. Me and my brother, we was we just wanted to get back to our family and to our life. I remember we used to watch cartoons and we took the stick and tied the clothes up in a little bundle and tried to put it on the stick so we could walk back to North Carolina. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> and, uh, and my mother used to send us every year. But then the distance grew more and more, and I didn't know none of the family there. So after about five or six years... You know, I didn't care if I went or not. You know, I missed my grandmother and my grandfather. And you also had, uh, unfortunately, another um, very sad event that happened with a family fight. Yes. What happened? And it seemed like that kind of kicked off yeah. a, a downhill struggle. Yeah. Can you share what happened in there? Well, my brother was, my oldest brother, Colin, he was going to Vietnam. He had just finished basic training. And my brother, Kenny, he was a year older than me. And uh, we was, me and my girlfriend was outside on the stoop, and the boys next door, they was in a gang, and they started harassing her. And I ran in the house and told my brother, no, my, Colin came out, and he said, yo, yo, leave him alone, leave her alone. And they wanted to fight him, so I ran in the house, and I told my other brother and his friends, I said, well, they trying to fight Colin out there. So we was drinking and carrying on, and my brother said, ain't nobody going to F with my, my brother and my uncle was sitting there. He said, what you say? How dare you curse in front of your mother? And they started fighting. 
And I mean, they fought for like, I mean, all around the corner and everything. And, and this nobody, is family. Yes. It's my mother's brother fighting her son. My brother was 16 years old. And um, so when my uncle hit him, he hit him back. And he's talking about you disrespectful and all this and all of that. Because he cussed in front of your, yeah, and cutting from your mother. Right. And uh, my, yeah, my brother cursed in front of my mother. So, and then he ended up in the hospital, your brother. Yes, they fought. My uncle was kicking him and stomping him. My mother was screaming, stop it, but nobody would stop it. And uh, my brother went to the hospital. When he came home that night, after the fight, he got a fever. My mother rushed him to the hospital, and they sent them back home. So the next day, she took him back to another hospital, and they kept him. And that was on a Sunday night. And my mother, on her way home from work, she said she stopped at the hospital and she came home and they called her on the phone. And she went back and when she came back, she was saying, my baby died. And I'm not, you, I didn't know what death was really was. Like, this, that's forever. And, uh, and he died at the hands of your uncle. That's how I took it. He died in the hospital. His appendix erupted. Mm -hmm. And that was like three or four days later. But that's where I took it to, that my uncle had killed my brother. And this put you almost on a path of unforgiveness, would oh, you say? Oh, please. <laughs> yeah? It just, you know. And I want to I get back to that in the relationship mm -hmm. you have with your mom. But so here you are in New York, and you love your mother very much, but your relationship with her began to change. Yes. Can you share with us why your mom asked you to stop calling her ma oh. and how that affected you? Yes. Um, well, I guess, you know, I was born, I had uh, my birthmark on my face. And uh, I know my father used to say that's, uh, that's, that's God making you different. So if anybody knows you, they wouldn't confuse you with somebody else. But one day, one of my mother's girlfriends from across the street, her sister came to visit and my mother was introducing her to her kids. And uh, when the lady got to me, she asked my mother, what did you do to mark that child like that? And, you know, I went for my mother to give her a piece of her mind. And I like, soon afterwards, my mother said, but don't call me ma. Mm -hmm. And I said, if I can't call you ma, what am I supposed to call you? And I had two older brothers calling her ma and the baby sister. Like, why am I in the middle? And I thought she was ashamed of me. Mm -hmm. So that, that made me angry with her. And it didn't help because you, you said in the book, um, Sacred Shelter, that your mom was exceptionally beautiful. Oh, yes, she was. And you always wanted to look like her. Yes. So here you have someone, <laughs> you know, that you admire and love now kind of pushing you away. Pushing me what away. did that do for your self-esteem? I, I didn't even, did I have any self-esteem at the time? I don't know, but I know it was a devastating blow. Yeah. You know, I, I thought I was hideous. I thought I was a mistake from God. Um but she never made me feel like that before. And I couldn't understand why that happened then. And I refused to call her Ma from that day on. Mm -hmm. I called her Miss Johnson. And I had family members want to beat me because I refused to call my mother Ma. I said, but that was her choice, not mine. I want to talk a little bit about the recurring dream you had. You know, maybe, Deborah, yeah. you could start with, um, in, in the book you talk about how you were lying on a bed, and you were looking. The blanket was over your head, and there were lights and people dancing. Dancing, right. Like you said, I remember it was a blanket over our heads, and we were laying there. She was at one end of the couch, and I was at the other end. 
And there was music playing. It was two adults up dancing to a slow record. And I just remember pain. Mm. And uh, I know when I got home, you know, like I said, we didn't have indoor plumbing, so it was like a, a, pot, a chamber pot. And I went to use the restroom, and I started crying. My mother said, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And she, t- I remember her taking me, throwing me on the bed and opening my legs, and she said, oh, you know. Yeah. And that was the dream. That didn't actually happen. Yeah, that happened. Oh, that actually happened. That I thought happened. that was that did happen. Yeah, that did happen. But you were dreaming about it too, but right? I, yeah, no, I was dreaming about who. I couldn't figure out who had abused me. Mm. You know. Yeah. I couldn't put a face to who abused me. Yeah. This is just the beginning of my conversation with Deborah Canty and Sophia Whirl. Join me next week as these courageous women continue to share how they moved through addiction and sexual abuse to ultimately inspire others. And if you'd like to read more from the book edited by Susan Greenfield, Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing is out now by Empire State Editions. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.